Hi, I'm Frank Wyatt, and this is Sonic Perspectives. About 45 years ago, a prog band with Midwest and East Coast roots appeared on the scene. They were called Happy the Man, which references Goethe's Faust and the Bible all at the same time, and no, it is not the Genesis song from 1972. Happy the Man put out a couple of just amazing albums in the mid to late 70s, full of intricate melodies and rhythms propelled by great musicianship. It was a thinking man's prog, one that really you had to sit down and get into, and it didn't sell. So the band, in various iterations, has been off and on, and I guess mostly off, ever since. But the band members themselves have been very busy. Frank Wyatt is one of them. He was the keyboardist and reed player for Happy the Man in those days, and he wrote most of the songs, and... From the standpoint of a fan at that time, Frank was the linchpin of Happy the Man. Late last year, Frank Wyatt released an album called Zeitgeist. It harkens back to Happy the Man, but it also has a very distinctive voice of its own. And the guest musicians include many of his former bandmates, as well as some guys you may recognize from a band called Cell 15. I'm Mark Boardman, contributor to Sonic Perspectives, and Frank Wyatt is with us today. Frank, welcome to Sonic Perspectives. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Zeitgeist, defined as a, a current mood or atmosphere or cultural climate of a particular time. What kind of zeitgeist are you feeling that made you put together this album? <laughs> the initial impetus for that song, I saw it as, I was using the translation a sign of the times, mm -hmm. which uh, essentially is the German translation, I believe. I was walking around in New York City and just happened to notice, now this is in the early 2000s, I noticed that cell phones were taking over. Everyone was walking around with their head buried in these cell phones, looking down as they walked. And I believe, from what I see today, it's gotten much, much worse than it was then. So the idea struck me that someday we were going to be replaced by these. I envisioned the kids running around with embedded displays instead of eyeballs and uh, just uh, being conquered by technology and perhaps losing a big chunk of our humanity in doing that. So that was the that was the, my inspiration or original thought for, for the tune Zeitgeist itself, for the track. What about the project in general? How did that start? What was the impetus for it? The original idea was I was going to pitch it to the Happy the Man guys. I was considering that since we had such a, a new vast array of technology available to us, that perhaps we might overcome the logistical problems we had in the past from our being spread out so much and be able to uh, cooperate with each other and do a project using the internet and remote studios and emailing tracks back and forth. So that was the idea. 
in the course of putting together my pitch for that, compiling some of the songs that I had in my archives, if you will, that had never been recorded, I was diagnosed with this disease and had to had to change gears. So I thought, well, I'll start to invite other members of bands or incarnations of Happy the Man that I've played with over the years and see if I could do some kind of a reunion thing. Because honestly, I was thinking this might be my last lash at it. You know, that might be the last time I was able to do anything. And I wanted to to try to get something done with all of the guys I'd played with over the years, nearly 50 years. I, I suppose in 2022, it'll be 50 years since I met Stan Whitaker at Madison College and, and we started up Happy the Man. So it was a reunion sort of thing. You you mentioned that uh, that Stan was on the, uh, actually he's on the first song. Uh, he's on the title track of, uh, of Zeitgeist. Uh, that first track really struck me as being almost Genesis-like. Uh, his vocals are a little husky and sort of like Peter Gabriel's, and it has a real catchiness to it and yet depth to it that uh, I think Prague people will find pretty appealing. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people comment on Stan's voice now that it's similar to Peter Gabriel's, and that's certainly a high praise. I'm, I'm sure Stan appreciates it too. His voice has got much much better over the over the years. I mean, he's he's worked hard at it and. He still performs regularly. Uh, he has a solo acoustic act that he goes out and, and performs. That's what he does for a living. So his vocals being compared to Peter's are a really good selling point as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you know, we we are really light on vocals in, in Happy All, Man. Always have been. Yeah, Oblivion Sun and Pedal Giant Animals. Pedal Giant Animals actually had a few more vocals in it because that was a duo project that Stan and I did. And... We had always wanted to do more vocal stuff, but it just never seemed to fit into the to the happy the man I don't know style, if you will. So on Pedal Giant Animals, we were able to resurrect a whole bunch of songs that we had been saving for many years mm-hmm. and get those recorded and put it out there mm-hmm. as a fun kind of thing to do. Sure, sure. Um, Zeitgeist, the song, dates back to about 2003, according to your liner notes. That's a long time for a piece to be, uh, I don't know, sort of building up and getting ready to come out. Not in Happy the Man world. Everything's everything's super slow in Happy the Man world. (laughs) I was working on it when uh, we recorded The Muse Awakens, and I found a video that Steve Durham had, had made of of me sitting at the piano in Snowbound Studios, banging out the part. Just, I played it for him. I said, "Hey, check this out. It's a new song I'm working on. It. It's the the piano part for for the track Zeitgeist. I think I have that posted somewhere." Leaving, which is the second song, you say is the first song that was written specifically for the project. Uh, I, I would guess some of these other things you, as you say, you sort of had in the library and sitting there and what am I going to do with it? And then this one, something happened. You decided, boy, this is one that's got to be put on here. Yeah, it was, I was uh, trying to do a YouTube channel for Crafty Hand Studio. And so I, rec- I was videoing little weekly sessions of how I created the song. And this was right after 
my diagnosis, which I hate to keep bringing up because I don't really want to be that guy, you know, the <laughs> cancer dude. It, it did make a big change in my life. So as I was working on this YouTube channel and putting together this song, is right during that time is when it changed from being a pitch for Happy the Man to me doing it as a invitation to all my friends to, to join me. So it became the first track that I sent out to try to uh, recruit people to play on the project for. Mm -hmm. Was it pretty easy to get them involved? Yes, it was. Yeah, every everyone that could immediately said yes. Ron Riddle said yes as soon as he could, but he was late to the party because he was super busy, so I guess he couldn't decide whether he could do it or not. So by the time he did say, yeah, I'll be happy to play on a track, I already had all these drummers play, so I didn't have a track for him. And I just was like, oh, crap, now what am I going to do? So 12 Jumps, I, I ran into the studio and actually wrote that really quickly with Ron in mind. And it worked out well because I was envisioning Ron playing on it. So in, in like an afternoon, that track was thrown together and Ron <laughs> did his part too. And it turned out to be one of a really, really cool track, a real fusion-y kind of track. It, it is a fusion-y kind of track. Ron Riddle, by the way, the second drummer, if I've got it right, uh, mm -hmm. performed right. for Happy the Man after Mike Beck. Right. And he was also uh, with Blue Oyster Cult. That's right. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. What What are the 12 jumps? There's spaces in the composition. Oh, okay. I, I have spaces. To, I have <laughs> to admit, I saw 12 jumps and I was going, is that a takeoff on 12 steps or, or what? Now, there's a little organ break, dot, 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 and it's in, I believe, the majority of the tunes in 5-8, but so the, there are 12 of those. And <laughs> for lack of any better reason, that's, that's how the name came about. <laughs> <laughs> it's, as, it's as good a reason as any. And when you're, when you're dealing with uh, a total instrumental, lyrics don't matter. That's right. Yeah. You, you don't have, you're not bound by any thematic uh, constraints. So just whatever. <laughs> how does the 11th hour come about? That song was written for a cat. A, My wife Mindy had a dying cat. cat. <laughs> a dying cat. Saved this old cat many years ago, back in Baltimore. And the cat was Henri. It was the meanest cat and did not like anyone, but for some reason really liked me. So I, I became close with the cat. And as she was getting really old and ready to expire i suppose she had a lot of problems we tried to take her to the vet and keep up with it but couldn't i was like okay she's in her 11th hour and we had a piano of course and i was i decided i would write something for me where the cat and since it was her 11th hour i wrote the song in 11 4 and that that's one of the very few times that i ever contrived a time signature most of my time signatures are completely accidents. I don't, I don't think about them at all. You have to go back in hindsight and dissect the tune to find out what the time signatures are. But this one actually started with the idea because I thought 11th hour, 11-4 would be a cool time signature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I don't know too many songs that are in 11-4. I was having to count to figure out exactly 
what it was. Yeah, you, that's the way most of my tunes are. The, the time I have a problem with standard time signatures, apparently. So I just play what comes out, and we usually would have to have to reverse engineer it to see what the time signatures were. The rhythm section would be the ones who found that necessary. Stan and I pretty much fell into a, a groove and didn't really count things. Mm-hmm. We just listened to it and flow with it. Mm-hmm. And, and Kit Watkins, Lord only knows what he did. He's such a genius. He's so brilliant. I don't know that he counted. I don't know. I don't. I think he is music. You know, it's like he doesn't. Well, in the in the day, he was just magical the way he could. He understood things, and his compositions were fantastic as well. Mm-hmm. And, he played and- on the Zeitgeist track, which was uh, he hadn't performed, had, hadn't done any music for a really long time, and I was able to convince him to to perform on it, and I think it turned out to be a good thing because he's released another album now of his own. Um, can't remember the name of it. Do you? I no, I can't remember it either. Oh, I got it. It's Field of View. That okay. He did another another album called Field of View since then. So perhaps my getting him involved with the Zeitgeist track inspired him to to get back into music to some extent, which is the world is a much better place for that. People may recognize Kit's name because he was with Camel for a while after he left Happy the Man. That's right. And, and he did a lot of other things, too. He was really busy for a time there. Yeah, I don't know how many albums he's written. He went he went sort of to the ambient side of things. Yeah. And just cranked out material, all of it brilliant. Well, with Eleventh Hour, uh it wasn't totally about the cat. Uh there are lyrics uh, in there where you're referring to yourself too. The music was written for the cat well back then. And when I decided to use it on this project that's when I wrote the music for it. So, I mean, the lyrics for it. And those lyrics were entirely about me. No, no longer was the, the music mm-hmm. part was written for the cat, but the lyrics were written for me. And then clear, uh, excuse me, Cliff Fortney, who was also in the very first iteration of Happy the Man back in the Madison College days, did the vocals for it. I sent him the track and I sent him my lyrics. And he was out in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He worked on the song and then drove out here to do the recording at, at my little home studio, Crafty Hands. And he had written all these layered tracks of vocal parts. It was fantastic. I was like, holy cow. I didn't I didn't expect that all for him to do that much work on it, but it came out great. I really love all the all the vocal parts he put in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that an accurate assessment of where you were at that time? from a mental emotional standpoint or was that an encouragement of where you wanted to be emotionally as you dealt with the cancer? No, that was pretty much where I was. That mm-hmm. was, that was an accurate representation of my state of mind. You're still mm-hmm. in that state of mind. I'm thinking about what I said. Yeah, I think I am. I think I am. Mm-hmm. Life has been good. My sunsets glow. I don't know where I'm going, but I do believe I'm going I believe in more. There's certainly more than this particular manifested reality in my in my opinion mm-hmm. it, to me having friends having parishioners who have had cancer and some of them didn't make it through uh you have a pretty uplifting message in that uh it's 
one of acceptance to a certain extent, but also appreciating what you've got and whatever comes next comes next. Yeah, you got through a, a sort of a spectrum of emotions. I mean, you're in denial for a while and you're you're really angry for a while. And I, I think ultimately, you, if you're going to remain sane, you, you do accept it and start to try to work with what you've got. So you have a lot of introspection, of course, in these things. I think you have to. Uh, I don't think you're given much choice on something like that. Yeah. And who knows, maybe in the end, that's, well, of course, it is part of the greater plan. I mean, I'm not saying that there's predestiny or anything like that. However, I wouldn't exclude that because what do we know, really? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, how, it's basically assumptions. We, have to, we just have to have faith, you know. If you, without that, we're in the abyss. Yes. Uh, without faith, we die emotionally and spiritually sometimes before the body does. Yeah, exactly. The approach is an interesting song because it starts off with sitar right out front and uh, intricate, but then it sort of shifts over to being a keyboard piece with a synthesizer and piano. It's a nice transition, but really sort of different from most things one's going to hear. Yeah, I'm not sure how exactly that came about. Let me think about it. Um... It was originally going to have vocals, and Dan Owen, I had approached to do the vocals, and he agreed to do it, but we could not make it work out logistically. So it ended up not having vocals. So while I was putting together a sort of guide track for the vocal parts that I was hearing, I used a choir patch. And as an inspiration for the choir patch, I was looking on my computer at images of the Himalayas and some Krishna stuff. And the idea for the sitar came from that, just from seeing those images while I was working. It sort of, and as it turns out, I remembered Pete Princiato had a sitar sitting in his living room down in Northern Virginia. So Pete was helping me with the orchestration on the Pyrolandra Symphony. And I just called him and said, hey, Pete, do you want to play some sitar on this track? And he brought it up and spent a day and recorded the track. And it, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's just one of those things that, you have the, had the idea, and it was actually able to manifest itself in mm -hmm. reality, right? Absolutely. It, it, it happened. Just the idea was born, and it followed through on, and it sounds really cool. I like it. It does sound cool. Very, very cool. So that, yeah, that intro part and that one little fluty uh, synthesizer part and the big growl, low synth part I did – and then Andrew Collier took over from there, and I just played piano through the rest of it. And Andrew wrote all those all those great keyboard parts himself, and he did those at his studio. And we communicated back and forth, making tweaks. And he uh, then sent me the files, and I dropped them into the master project here. Then we took them up to at the end of the project. I I don't really have the proper outboard gear to do a a really good mix, so we took everything to Bob Richardson up in the Harrison, I mean, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is not too far from me, about an hour. And he did the mixes on everything. Mm -hmm. And and for some of our listeners, they'll know that, that Robert is the man behind Cell 15. We've interviewed him before, and uh, he is uh, he's quite the talent on a number of fronts as well. Yeah, he's great. I really love him. Yeah. 
he did a fantastic job with the Zeitgeist project. Some of the some of the songs were stressing his his machines because <laughs> I uh, I had so many tracks on the Paralander the symphony thing and he was he had to reconfigure his stuff to, just to be able to handle all the tracks. So he did he did a lot of work, a, a whole lot of work, and uh, you know mixing mixing say 110 tracks of symphonic instruments is not an easy thing to do. So I uh, know it's not. <laughs> God bless him. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted the challenge anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he never he never even shied away from it at all. He dug right into it. So. Yeah. What about Fred's song? This is dedicated to uh, a friend of yours who has passed. Yeah, Fred Brown. He was uh, an attorney, uh, a good friend of the bands from way back. I remember when we were in Harrisonburg in the basement, Fred had had uh, been with Stan, a friend of his as an army grad in Germany. And Fred came into the, the basement rehearsal studio one day and said, guys, I got a 12-year plan. Or, yeah, I think it was a 12-year plan. He said, I'm going to join the army for a couple of years so I can get college paid for. Then I'm going to go to Berkeley, and then I'm going to go to Yale, and I'm going to be a music lawyer. And we were all like, yeah, right, Fred, sure. <laughs> so... Lo and behold, he did everything he said, finished it a year sooner, and eventually became uh, the director of legal affairs for Warner Brothers. And he was the president of the Black Entertainment Sports Lawyers Association. Really fabulous, fabulous guy, a wonderful friend, loved him to death. I mean, he was just, you know, my dearest friend. Mm -hmm. And he got some kind of rare Japanese cancer so that, because he was half Japanese and, and half black. So something uh, I can't remember the kind of cancer it was, but it was particular to uh, to Asian populations, and and he uh, passed away from that. So I tried to write lyrics for this song. I, I had the music, and I tried for a couple of years and could not write down the feelings I had for Fred. So Stan suggested that we should just leave it an instrumental that it stood well enough on its own without the without the words. I couldn't make them happen. I couldn't find them. Well, he's right. Sometimes the music says it all, and to try and embellish it with lyrics would actually detract from the emotion that you're trying to get across. Yeah, it may, it may have. Who knows? I mean, perhaps the words are out there somewhere, but I, could, I couldn't find them. One of the things that struck me about this one is it it sort of starts off and continues as calm and and peaceful, the way memories are supposed to be gentle, and it's, and then all of a sudden, about oh, a little over halfway through, there's this jump, this emotional flare-up in the music, before it comes back down at the end. What was that about? That was my impression of losing Fred. That was it. That that moment was just. Uh, I'm not sure what what it's called when you when you try to. Uh, make the music represent a, a feeling that he had. But, but I was just felt like I was hit with a hammer when Fred passed away. And so that was the, that was that one weird moment there where I just went crazy on the piano. That's one of those things where there was, there's still no time signature to find in that little break. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bill Brasso came up with a drum part for it. It was never able to count it. He just had to learn it and, and played along with it because it's so, it's kind of bizarre. And then after that, there was the, the introspective part where it's just the peaceful remembrance of Fred. And coming out of that, it builds back up to a right. powerful, 
happy memory of him. So right. he was a uh, he loved gospel music in the church, and he I just picture him at the end of that with standing with a, a choir swaying and clapping their hands, you know, with that big huge smile on his face that he always had. The last piece, the the epic. I guess you'd say, at least from a, the length standpoint, certainly, uh, for Zeitgeist is the Paralandra Symphony in D-flat major, uh, taken basically uh, from the inspiration of C.S. Lewis? Yeah, written, it was written about uh, a science fiction book. The second of his trilogy, the Space Trilogy, it was called, written in the 30s and maybe into the 40s. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a classic good versus evil adam and eve sort of story i was inspired by the dichotomy of it it's in d flat major but there's some wacky chords in there pete and i were just figuring this out the essential root of the chord is a d flat minor seven with a flat five over an f flat but you would call no root it's it's just kind of bizarre because i mean it's one of those it's one of those things that uh I like half tones, and, and I superimpose half tones over suspended chords a lot mm-hmm. in the in the bass. But this, why am I going into the theory here? Go ahead. I should get back on the track. <laughs> <laughs> it was my symphony. Yeah. I wanted to write. Uh, I wanted to write a symphony. I always did. It's kind of you know when you think you're going to retire someday and buy a telescope and look at the stars and write a <laughs> symphony that those were my two retirement ambitions. Mm-hmm. So I still haven't got my telescope, but I have certainly written my symphony now. Uh, folks buy this CD, buy it right now so that Frank can get his telescope. Nah, nah. <laughs> I don't know. I probably should have had a telescope when I lived in Hawaii. The sky was much better there. Yeah. yeah much better than in <laughs> Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I'll have time to, to look through the telescope because I've discovered that writing music and, and making making music has turned out to be probably the best medicine for me. So I'm just carrying on with that. Mm-hmm. I was a little interested in that you used this particular work of Lewis's because this isn't his best known stuff at all. Uh, you know, obviously the Narnia things are screw tape, a few other things, but how did you pick up on this? I'm a big sci-fi fan. Are you? So, I mean, Through the Looking Glass, of course, would be an easy one. Alice in Wonderland, lots of people have, have done that. But I, I like this because it's a sci-fi story. You know, it's going to other planets, meeting alien creatures. Plus it ties in with the, the whole Bible relativity of the good versus evil Adam and Eve thing. So that's where I see it anyway. I'm not sure if that's correct, but we we are each allowed our own interpretations, I suppose. Of course, of course. The last section is called Blessed Be. You left out yeah, a bless, word you left out bless, one of his words there. Blessed be he. Yes. Is there a yeah, reason where, you uh, did that or just uh coming up with a different interpretation? Well it's the, all the animals are being paraded in front of the green lady at the at the end of that particular book of the the trilogy and and they they say a kind of a prayer and at the end of each verse of the prayer it's they all say blessed be he they chime in so that's where it came from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the the blessed be he is 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Maldil, uh, which is, well, it is for C.S. Lewis, that's God. Maladil, the elder, the, the elder is God, the, the younger is Jesus. Yeah, it's the, the great architect of the universe. Right, right. So you're a little Masonic. You're, <laughs> yes, that too. You're, you're getting into some heavy topics there. Well, life's heavy. It is. It is. Could I ask a couple of questions about Happy the Man? Sure. I might remember. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, you guys had a major label contract with Arista. You got produced by Ken Scott, who did Super Tramp and Bowie and the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Uh, you almost, almost became the backing band for Peter Gabriel around the time of his second solo album. In fact, you worked out with him in a warehouse or someplace, I guess, outside of Washington, D.C. You opened for Foreigner, you opened for Renaissance and other big bands. Why the heck didn't you guys make it big? No commercial potential. <laughs> there was no uh, there was no prog rock scene in the United States. I always thought, as did other members of the band, that if Arista had sent us to Europe, where progressive music, you know, it really wasn't even called progressive music then. No. Mm -hmm. It was symphonic rock, they called it, mm -hmm. probably. But I think we would have had a lot more success if they had had the, had the vision to send us to Europe where there were audiences for that kind of music. I mean, we, we were put on tour with hot tuna. Can you see happy? The man opened for hot tuna. <laughs> no. we no. did all these big halls. You go out with 8,000 screaming people going, Yarma, Yarma and throwing stuff. And many times on that tour, we were paid to just not even set up and said, we'll see you in Chicago. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even set up our gear because, you know, I mean, we go to Comac Long Island and played the Fieldhouse Arena there, and people have been standing in line drinking for two days to get in to see Hot Tuna. You know, <laughs> who wants who wants to go <laughs> to see a, a a symphonic rock band come out and play before that? I mean, it, it was actually physically dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, how did you do when you were win with uh, another symphonic band like Renaissance? Were they more accepting? Because you, you're not oh, as yeah. melodic as Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah, well, we only did, I think, one or two dates with them. I, I only remember one off the top of my head. So if we had been put on a tour with them, that would have been great. But I think I think it was a very limited engagement. It was at the Warner Theater, maybe, in D.C. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I don't remember. But little, I have little glimpses of it. But Annie Haslam, my wife loves Annie Haslam. She's one of her, she's probably her favorite vocalist, and we have all her all their stuff. Mm -hmm. When we played Near Fest, I had a little booth for my speakers in in one of the rooms, and Annie was selling her paintings next to me. So we had a few days together there. It was great. You just say hello to her and offer oh, yeah, her sure. speaker cabinets. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't offer speaker cabinets, <laughs> but and we did talk. You you didn't buy one of her paintings either, probably. I'm a poor man. I know. <laughs> well, Happy the Man has come back together a few times here and there. And as you said, this this project at one point was supposed to be a Happy the Man project. Is there anything in the future possibility of recording? Uh, nothing on, 
on the slate right now. It's not not for recording anything. I mean, we have some things in the works with other other things with Happy the Man, but nothing nothing recording new. Mm-hmm. What about for you? This was supposed to be your swan song, but you look like you're doing pretty well, relatively speaking to me. Uh, do you have other musical thoughts in mind that you want to put down? Yeah, I'm working on a, a new piece called Atlantis. It's going to be a, a whole project based on Atlantis. Mm-hmm. And will that include some of the same people we saw on Zeitgeist? I don't know yet. I, I haven't decided. I'm still working on I'm actually still reading. I read tons of books to try to uh, solidify in my mind the, the images that I want. I have one one part of the music written so far called Fountain by the Moon that I had worked on before, and it's leaning towards another orchestral kind of thing. So who knows at this point? I, w- I, w- I wouldn't be able to say. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll hope that it comes to fruition in the sooner time period rather than the latter time period. And uh, I just want to reinforce that... Uh, Zeitgeist is a very special album. Uh, It's one that you're not going to get up to and dance particularly, but for folks who want to sit and listen and absorb and think as well as feel, this is one of those kinds of albums. This requires you to, to sit there and just take it in and ignore all the other things in the world. So for those kids you talked about who are walking around with cell phones, looking at them all the time, this is not their music. It could be. I mean, they, well, I don't know. I really don't know. My daughter likes it, but she's no longer young. Either of my daughters, for that matter. Well, I think the, gen- the generic young kid who probably just looks at that and sings to Bieber or something like that is not going to like this one. Nah, you're right. But people like me do, and I, I think there are going to be a lot of people in in the Prague area that are going to find this very, very appealing. Uh, Frank, I want to thank you. Uh, wish you the best in your, your health challenges, and uh, certainly also wish you the best in whatever comes next musically. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Frank Wyatt has come out with this wonderful new album, relatively new, called Zeitgeist. My name is Mark Boardman, and for the latest news, reviews, and interviews, go to sonicperspectives.com. And as we go out, let's play the title track, Zeitgeist, by Frank Wyatt and Friends.
Pictures 